coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. History has recorded the dying words of many individuals who are famous. I find it interesting what was on other people's minds as they died. You know, there were some people who were thinking about God as they died. Edgar Allan Poe's dying words were said to have been, Lord, help my poor soul. Think about Mother Teresa, who was overheard saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And then she died. Martin Luther King Jr. was heard saying, make sure they play, take my hand, precious Lord. And those were his last words. There had been other people, though, who felt no need for God as they died. As she overheard her housekeeper praying for her aloud, the actress Joan Crawford's last words were expletive. Don't dare ask God to help me. And that was the last thing that she ever said. As Saddam Hussein was led to the gallows, his last words were used in order to damn his executioners to hell and to mock them in Arabic. And yet there had been other people, though, who had thought of others as they died. As Bobby Kennedy lay on the ground at the Ambassador Hotel in California, he said to a busboy, is everyone all right? And that was the last thing Bobby Kennedy ever said. Other people have been comical as they died, as Winston Churchill's dying words were said to have been, I'm bored with it all. <laughs> and yet many people didn't even know that they were saying their last words as they died. FDR's last words were, I have a terrible headache. At Ford's Theater, Mary Todd Lincoln asked her husband what other people might think of an older couple spotted holding hands in public. And Abraham Lincoln said they won't think anything of it. And then the gunshot. Tim Russert was recording voiceovers at NBC Studios as he was heard inexplicably saying, what's happening? And then he died of a heart attack. And yet when Jesus died, though, Jesus knew exactly what was happening. And Jesus had his mind on other people, and Jesus had his mind on his Father. I mean, Jesus was born to die. John chapter 12, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and very soon he's going to be nailed to a cross. And yet just before he goes to the cross, what he says is, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now, but for this purpose, Jesus says, I have come to this hour, and so, Father, glorify your name. I mean, I find it so interesting that as Jesus goes to the cross, he asks the question, what should I say as I'm crucified? So for these next seven weeks, all I want to do 
is to stand at the cross with you and to listen intently to every straining sentence that he speaks with failing breath. And that's because it's at the cross where we hear the final words that Jesus said before he died. It's there where we see what was most filling his heart in those moments. And it is there where his divinity and his humanity are showcased in all of their splendor to us. And so we begin this morning in, the, in Luke's Gospel. And we come to Luke chapter 23. And we begin with the very first words that Jesus says from the cross. And just let me assure us that these words were highly anticipated by all of the people who nailed him to that cross. I find it interesting how the Roman historians at the time wrote extensively about crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was so horrific that it was commonplace for the crucified to viciously curse whoever was there. They would curse their own birth. They would curse their executioners. They would viciously curse even their own mom and dad and brother and sister. Oftentimes they would try to spit on whoever was close enough to the cross who was, who was looking at them as they died. And there's another Roman historian who writes how the speech of the crucified had been so obscene that they would oftentimes have to cut their, their tongue out of their mouth as they nailed them to the cross in order to prevent them from spewing all of, all of um, a venom that they would oftentimes spew. And I mean, what this means is that for all of the people who hated Jesus the most, I mean, this was the moment that they expected that the darkness would, would finally show in Jesus. This one who had preached so loudly and so relentlessly about loving his enemies, about turning the other cheek and about praying for those who had persecuted him. No, this is where Jesus is surely going to renounce those very things that he once taught. This is where he's going to viciously curse the people who he professed and who he believed that he had loved before. This is what the expectation was as Jesus goes to the cross. And so we come to our text and we see, was this Jesus' response to it? Luke chapter 23 and starting in verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And then at last in verse 34, here it is, the very first thing that Jesus says while dying on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do, or rather, for they know not what they do. Well, a lot of times earlier, Jesus had said to his disciples that he would be crucified. But we have to understand that nobody could have possibly understood this until a little bit later on. And that's because, after all, these people are living in a time where their only perception of a cross was disgrace and dishonor. I mean, the cross was something reserved only for guilty, horrible, hardened criminals. 
Likewise, the skull had been the place where the dregs of society and the absolute worst of the absolute worst went in order to be executed. If you died on a cross, you went out of the world as a worthless excuse for a human being. It was a death blow to your whole entire family name from that point forth. And yet more than anything else, though, the cross was a symbol of fear to everybody who ever beheld it. You know, the very word crucifixion means both to destroy and yet equally to mortify. And so crucifixion was both physical and psychological. It was a terrifying public service announcement that if you mess with Rome, if you try to overthrow us or to kick us out of your country, that's going to be you tomorrow morning. And I mean, when Jesus was crucified, he was not crucified wearing a loincloth as our paintings and movies oftentimes show him wearing. No, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified entirely naked. And that's because Roman crucifixion was, was about as much of inflicting humiliation and disgrace as it would pain and of, um, of um, a torment. And yet as we hear Jesus praying this prayer up above us at the cross, this is what we marvel most at. Is that as this great perversion of justice unfolds, and as Jesus is being executed as this innocent miracle worker, I mean, in any other story, this is really the moment in the movie where we might expect very intense and dramatic music to begin playing in the background. This is that very exciting and triumphant moment where our protagonist rips the nails from his hands and his feet, where he comes down from the cross and then he nails every single one of them to a cross of their own. And yet, as we know, though, this is not a movie, is it? And that is not at all Jesus. But rather, what he does is, as he speaks his first words from the cross, notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking the most inhumane, macabre symbol imaginable of the cross. And he's using it to tell a love story. Jesus is making a love story out of all things Roman crucifixion. Jesus is telling a love story of a God who left heaven in order to be born in a donkey feeding trough and executed naked in the city dump and doing it eagerly and joyously because, after all, it meant bearing all of the sin and darkness and corruption of humanity. It meant dying for a world who hated him then and still hates him in the world of today. It's the idea of, you know, God telling his love story through crucifixion was, was absolutely outlandish to the ears of anybody who heard it in the first century. And I think sometimes we forget what, you know, how all of this is a story. I love so much how a minister whose name is Brian Zahn says it, where he says that the gospel is not a formula. It's not a set of spiritual laws or an explanation of how to get to heaven. 
but rather the gospel is a story. It is a love story culminating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, when we reduce the gospel to cartoon tracks or religious dogma or to anything else other than the story that crescendos with Easter, we strip it of its power to illuminate our souls. And so now with Jesus, what we see is that the cross is now both hideous and holy. It is both brutal and beautiful. And notice how in this process, the great irony is, is that the very ones who had thought that they were bringing shame and humiliation upon Jesus are now being shamed and humiliated by his loving response on the cross. I mean, this is the response that can only come from above, isn't it? Where once again, what we see with Jesus is that where in the fury of the moment, as violence comes lashing down upon him, rather than spiritually and psychologically responding in the posture of a balled up fist, Jesus spiritually and psychologically responds with hands in the posture of prayer. Where the very first words out of his mouth is a ten word prayer. And it is a prayer not of cursing his executioners, but it is a prayer of forgiveness. Where he says, Father. And what we see in this is Jesus the man is once again showing his absolute dependency upon his Father. As he says, Father, what he is saying to his Father is that I am not going at this alone. I am not leaning on my own understanding. I'm not going to allow anger and rage to do my speaking for me. Rather, I'm going to let you do my thinking for me, O Father. And so he says, Father, but then he also says, Father, forgive. And to forgive, as we all know, means to drop the charges. It means that we are, are discharging our prisoner. We are canceling all of the debt that we had against them, and we're letting them walk free once again. And so he's saying, have mercy on them. Forgive them for what they are doing, because after all, I want to spend eternity in heaven with these people. And so he says, change their hearts, in, in a sense. Give them an opportunity to have a brand new beginning. And yet he also says, Father, forgive. And then he also uses the word them. Father, forgive them. And I mean them is the word that brings the absolute worst out in us, doesn't it? Where if we don't like where a person had been born, perhaps. Where we don't like a person's skin pigmentation or, or how they worship or how they vote or who they marry, whatever it is. We classify people not as us's, but as them's. Oh, that's those guys who are always wrong, and we're the ones who are always right. And we all have our them's in our own ways. And yet notice as Jesus dies on the cross, notice really the beautiful way that he uses this word them. And I mean, nobody has more them's than Jesus. Nobody. He looks down and he sees Caiaphas, perhaps, the high priest. The same exact person who 
less than 24 hours ago, presided over this, this illegal courtroom over him, walked up and he punched Jesus as hard as he could in his face. Jesus looks down upon Caiaphas and says, Father, forgive him. And he hears the jeering of the religious leaders mocking him on the cross. These are the same exact chief priests and Pharisees and scribes who stirred up violent, angry mobs against him, who egged on false witnesses against him, who spent three years trying to get him to, to die on a cross. And what Jesus says as he looks down upon them is, Father, forgive them. He looks over and he sees Roman soldiers standing there. The exact same huge Roman soldiers who just punched him in the face earlier. Who took a crown of thorns and gouged it into his skull. Who flogged him an inch from his life and who mocked him mercilessly. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. He looks out and he sees how just one of his disciples is there. All the other apostles have abandoned him, have, have swore to God that they never even heard of him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And just as much Jesus, being God in the flesh, looking through the veil of time and history, looks at me and he looks at you while he's on the cross. Looks at the whole human family and says, Father, forgive them. I mean, on the cross, Jesus reveals what a them truly is. Jesus reveals that the only thems that there are, are those who are guilty of sin. And I mean, shouldn't that change the way that we see other people in the world who, for whatever reason, we have a struggle loving? If we looked upon people no longer as a them, but as a person who has sinned just as I have sinned, we would be reminded that once upon a time, we were God's them as Jesus went to the cross. How once upon a time, Romans chapter 5, we were Jesus' worst enemies. And yet in this beautiful, majestic love story on a cross, Jesus' very first words were an invocation of forgiveness and blessing on his them. A lot of times we will hear the phrase when, when a person is, is, is um, made to feel proud of the guy who they voted for, they'll say, that's my president. And then as we see Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, president of presidents dying upon the cross, what wells up inside my soul is that's my president. That's my king. That is my God. Father, forgive them, he prays, for they do not know what they're doing. It's a phrase which means to perceive or to be completely aware of something. And I mean, for the Roman soldiers, this was just another day in the execution business for them. We look at the Jewish leaders and we say, well, I mean, how could they not have known exactly what they were doing? I mean, they had every single conceivable opportunity to know who Jesus was. The, the evidence of his lordship was overwhelming. And yet, as we know, though, their hearts were so hardened by hypocrisy and by politics. They were blinded to their sin. And they were in denial of who the real Jesus really was. And is the American church listening this morning? 
Their hearts were so hardened by hypocrisy and by politics that they were blinded to their sin and they were in denial of who the real Jesus really was. As the Apostle Paul says later, both of himself as well as the leaders of the time, he says that they acted in absolute ignorance about Jesus. He says in another place that if they, they knew, fully understood who Jesus was, they, they never would have done this. And yet as Jesus prays on the cross, notice especially now the creation has come full circle. Where the very first time we see an us and a them in the scriptures is in the book of Genesis, it is God and it is us. God says, let us now make man in our image. And now all of these years later, now what is God saying? God is saying, and now let us forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. I mean, it's just so powerful that you know, it's even, you know, there are even greater dimensions of beauty in Jesus' prayer than we may realize. In most of our um, translations in our Bibles, in the English language, it says how Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And yet in the original language of the scrolls, it actually says, and Jesus was saying, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. You see, what this means is that this wasn't merely a prayer Jesus prayed once and only once. But rather, this is a prayer that Jesus is continuously praying for as long as he was on the cross. Over and over again, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And so we see that the ten-word prayer was also the six-hour prayer. As Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 53, that he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. And then Isaiah says that he made intercession for us, and this is what he's doing on the cross. As the Hebrew writer says later on, he, he ever lives to make intercession for us as our high priest. And so you see, Jesus is making intercession for us on the cross. And every day of our lives, Jesus makes intercession on behalf of us as we live, yet in the present tense. And so we see his response that can only come from above. And yet, as we all know far too well and far too painfully, this is not the response that comes natural to us, is it? Rather, we know the response that comes from here below. You know, recently in the news, I had heard a story about an altercation that had broken out in a movie theater. There was a man who was on his phone, as the preview showed, and he was writing um, a babysitter asking him about their child, if, if he was, was okay. Well, there was an older man who was seated somewhere behind him who was a, reti or who was a retired SWAT commander. He told them that he needed to get off his phone and they began arguing with each other. Man on the phone, he turns around and he threw um, popcorn at the guy. And then the guy reached out and he pulled out a gun and he blew his brains out. Killed him right there in the movie theater. And I mean, it, 
You know, in the fury of the moment, all that it took was a handful of popcorn being thrown and violence and murder unfolded. I mean, it's something that we saw just last week at the Academy Awards where Chris Rock had been on stage and, and he had a lot of jokes that he was telling. He made the mistake of, of having one of those, those jokes at Will Smith's wife's expense. Will Smith rises up to defend his wife's honor. He emphatically slaps Chris Rock as hard as he can. And you know, I've, I've heard a lot of commentary in the past week. A lot of people said that Chris Rock was wrong. Other people said Will Smith was wrong. But I think a lot of times in these situations, it's possible for everybody to have been wrong. You know, less than an hour after he had hit Chris Rock, Will Smith, of course, wins the Academy Award that he waited his whole entire career for. And yet the whole evening had been ruined because he had responded with the response that comes from, from here below. You see, in the fury of the moment, the moment that he worked his whole entire career for, well, it's been ruined now. His reputation now is being ruined by a lot of people. And I mean, how many times have we acted on anger and ignorance in the fury of the moment? I mean, I imagine that we can't even remember or even count all of the times where, where that had been us in some way, shape, or form. And yet the good news for us this morning, though, is that in the early church, we see that this response of Jesus really is possible in us. Where in the book of Acts, we see the early Christians adopting this mindset as their very own. I think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is being falsely accused of things just as Jesus was. And he begins accurately exposing what their hearts were like. They begin gnashing teeth and, and they begin stoning Stephen. And yet Stephen's dying words is, is not um, a prayer of um, condemnation or of anger, but rather Stephen's dying words were, Lord Jesus, he says, do not hold this sin against them. And I mean, those were the last words Stephen ever said. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. We might say, yeah, but I mean, what does that have to do with us? There's nobody gnashing teeth or throwing rocks at us. There's nobody nailing us naked to a cross. Well, if that's true, I would say, all the more then ought we to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, even if they knew exactly what they were doing to us, God, forgive them anyway. God, bless them. Change their heart just as you are changing my heart. Father, forgive them because I want them to be in your heaven with us. This is the attitude and the mindset of Jesus Christ. And I mean, forgiveness is such a precious commodity and it's such a necessity for our souls that Jesus says that whenever you stand up and pray, he says, forgive. If you have anything against anybody, Jesus says, forgive them 
in order that your Father in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And as we will experience, when we adopt this mindset and when we respond to, to being wronged in this way, every time the love of heaven is unveiled to a broken world. So as we close this morning, I just want to call us all to just simply this. I want to call us to meditate on these 10 words that Jesus prays. As we go about the day, ponder it in our minds over and over again. Hear it in our minds. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I want to challenge us to, when we have been wrong, pray this prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let those words make their way deeper and deeper into our hearts and our minds. Pray them for our past offenders. Pray them whenever we happen to be wronged. And if we will do this, we along with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will all cry in unison, Father, forgive them. And love and forgiveness and peace will, will prevail over defensiveness and over unforgiveness. You know, just last week, the LAPD was ready to arrest Will Smith and throw him in jail for what he did to Chris Rock. And yet, when Chris Rock had been asked whether or not he was going to press charges, his response was very fitting. Or it was just three words long and all the same word. He said, no, no, no. Just a couple of nights later, he was on stage in Boston and, and a fan began cursing out Will Smith and Chris Rock again said, no, 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 don't do that. And you know, every single one of us have been wronged severely. We have been mistreated. We have been insulted. Some of us have, have even been traumatized. And every single one of us have severely harmed other people. And yet we have been lavishly forgiven by God and, and we will be lavishly forgiven by God again and again and again. And so as it pertains to all of this hurt that we are processing as people, let us go to the cross and remember what Jesus prays. And that's because it's there on the cross where we hear this God who would so much rather die naked on a cross than to destroy and to get even with his enemies.